Hi, this is Nader Sammy, CEO of Nimble Solutions. I'm here today, along with Lisa Rock, our founder and president, to host a special edition of the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. And we are doing it here on site in Chicago from the 20th Annual Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference. We're thrilled to have two of the most prominent orthopedic surgeons in the nation with us today, Dr. Michael Redler and Dr. Scott Sigmund. And Dr. Redler was a founding partner of the Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center, which merged with Connecticut Orthopedics in 2018. He specializes in sports medicine as well as hand and upper extremity surgery, and is also very focused on the education of future sports medicine providers. Dr. Sigmund, known by all as the FRO, is one of the most entrepreneurial and enterprising orthopedic surgeons in the nation. He's served as team physician for the U.S. Ski Jump Team, and team physician for UMass Lowell, and uh, has also been chair of orthopedics at Lowell General Hospital. In addition, he has um, runs the Orthopedic Show podcast, which is highly watched and highly attended, and is the founder of Ortho Laser, which is designed to treat pain and inflammation. So with that, we are going to turn uh, to a couple of questions, a handful of questions for you guys. Thanks for having us. And that's a great introduction. And, you know, it's, it's such an honor to be with you, but also by an orthopedic surgeon that goes by just one name, just Fro. <laughs> the last name is kind of like share of orthopedic surgeons. Yeah, Madonna, you know, Prince before the name change. <laughs> so so apparently he's he's used to that that comment. Okay. So uh, I'd like to get us started, if that's okay. Uh, we've seen a lot of growth in orthopedic procedures moving from the hospital environment over to the ASC environment especially with total joints. What's next? What will we see move to the ASC environment? So uh, no one wants to go to the big white building with sick patients in it anymore, the hospital, right? As many of uh, patients as we can get moved to the ASC to try and help to reduce costs to the system, uh, as well as you know, provide quality health care. So uh, I think spine's probably the next big push. We're seeing a look, Sharon, for example, who's doing um, uh, spinal fusions under local anesthetic. So really tremendous uh, pushes in that direction. I think the biggest issue is going to be the conflict on cost uh, because these implants are expensive. The procedures can be expensive. Reimbursement goes down when you move to the ASC from an HOPD model. So the question is going to become, how do you reconcile the cost with the need to move to these ASCs? Interesting. Just to follow up on that, do you think uh, self-funded plans that are motivated to have their employees come back to work sooner could help with that? Because if we're moving procedures from the hospital to the center and it's a little bit less expensive, um, there's also an opportunity to get those employees back to work sooner. Lisa, I think that it's going to be so important to do as many of these cases as we can at an ASC, which is going to be a high quality, lower cost alternative. The other thing that we know, and we look at our data at our surgical center, surgery center, Fearful County, and our infection rate is much less than 1%. It's like one-tenth of 1%. There's no hospital, big white building with sick people in it that can actually compete with that. As such, you want a situation where it is lower cost, high quality, you want to get outstanding care, you want outstanding comfort, and you want them to be able to recover in their own home with a lower risk of infection. That's a win-win for any self-employed group or self-funded group. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I, I would uh, uh, also argue, Lisa, that's a great point by Dr. Redler. 
I think that if I were an employer and I'm looking to identify how I get my patients and my employees back to work as quickly as possible, you know, life is not George Orwellian. All doctors are not created equal. Uh, and as Dr. Redler pointed out on his panel this morning, you know, your, your outcomes, your results do matter. So you're going to track what's your infection rate, how quickly are people getting up and getting back to work, you know, return to the operating room. That, that data is super important. So when you develop a bundled package, perhaps with an employer that's looking to move away from commercial payers, you're going to have to prove your worthiness. Sounds like this topic could go a whole hour by itself. <laughs> so I'm going to go to you. Know, yes, and, and just quickly before we fully leave the topic, are there any are there orthopedic procedures that are still heavily being done inpatient or HOPD that you see moving in the near term to the ASC? Well, I, I think that as uh, Scott, or perhaps we should just call him the fro so everybody <laughs> knows who I'm talking about, uh, said, you know, spine is going to be the, the the next bigger one there as well. And, and I think that these are more complex procedures. They can generally be longer procedures, but part of the whole ability to do them in an outpatient setting is these patients have to be comfortable. And if you can create a comfortable episode of care, you can do these bigger procedures. That was the same thing with total joints. It was the same thing with rotator cuff repairs, ACL reconstructions, uh, shoulder replacements. The more we can do to allow them to be safe, but also comfortable will also allow us to let them recover at home, which is where you want to be. Makes sense. Great. So, so yes. Yeah, so moving, moving on to the next question, um, as we mentioned, you guys are both cutting edge entrepreneurial uh, orthopedic surgeons. What are the most innovative and impactful orthopedic technologies or therapeutics um, that you see utilized today and uh, that, that have helped create this paradigm shift to the ASCs? Um, and what do you see on the horizon? You know, I don't know about what, what you think, Scott, but I think that one of the first big things is you always have to talk about biology. You know, we we, we can repair things. We can put things back together, but you've got to get them to heal. And the way that you get them to heal is you need to use the body's own biology and sometimes supercharge it to get things to heal. I think also when we realize that we have tissue that's not a great quality, if we can now augment and get things to heal, like a bad rotator cuff tear with bad tissue or after an ACL injury or an Achilles tendon injury, then those are the big horizons that are going to allow us to help more people get to their ultimate outcome of getting back to their regular life. So not our, two points on that. I would say first and foremost, we have to manage our patient's pain, right? I think the technology that's allowed us to move into the ASC model has really been the advancements. So things like liposomal bupivacaine used for regional blocks or Zen relief that can be used for knee replacement or, or hip replacement surgeries as well. Uh, and we've done really well. And then the question is, what do we do as we go forward? So for example, a company such as Gate Science, who's gonna hopefully close the efficacy gap to provide longer term pain relief beyond those first three days to even make it better for patients. And then the next thought I would have would be is why isn't technology in medicine, right? I have a smartphone that can GPS take me anywhere in the world and give me all these amazing applications. So what if we can improve the technology that we're doing, bringing in artificial intelligence into medicine, into orthopedic surgery? And there are companies, for example, such as Caliber AI, that's going to allow us to understand the anatomy and give us real-time feedback as we're operating, taking information from Dr. Redler or from Dr. Levine and all these other doctors combining it together and then being able to use that data to give a better better patient care. So exciting times. Yeah. I, I think, uh, Lisa, Scott's absolutely right. 
And our goal with any patients that we're treating in an ASC is to create an experience where there is comfort. And we can do that now with some of the new technologies that are available, as he said, with liposomal pivocaine, with Zen Relief. And ultimately, I think the next generation is going to be gate science, whereby it will not only be the ability to have them have a comfortable experience in the immediate perioperative period, but then using the next technology of neuromodulation, get to the point where they can have an overall experience comfortable. If you can create a comfortable experience for patients, they're going to recover more quickly. They're going to have a better frame of mind. They're going to be able to get back to their life. And you can be able to do more of these cases in an ASC setting. And so that's a huge, huge advancement. So, so moving on to the next question, that was that was great and very helpful, interesting insights. What do you guys see as the most significant business challenges facing orthopedic groups or surgery centers today? You know, I think that there is economics that may not be sustainable in terms of the direction that things are going right now, with physician reimbursement being cut for Medicare, uh, with a shortage in some parts of the country for anesthesia. Uh, and with decreasing reimbursement, with uh, the ability of insurance companies to reject care or to ask for peer reviews, and you're going to get to the point whereby there's going to be a lot of patients going to be left out. And what we need to do is create a situation where patients who need care can get care, that the red tape of the insurance companies has not gotten in our way. And, and frankly, what we know as physicians and I know we're talking to Nimble Solutions, but what we know as physicians is that we know how to take care of patients really well. We need a lot of help and so do the surgical centers in terms of the economics to allow us to deliver that care. And that's going to be the biggest stumbling block in my mind. So what I see is one of the great challenges right now is moving to the ASC from where I was in an HOPD system is reimbursement on implants and the ability to do surgery. I literally get an email every day from my surgery center, sending me a cost analysis of what this is going, what we get reimbursed, what, what the cost is, and what the potential profit's gonna be. And it's really unfortunate, but as many as 30 to 35% of my cases have to be moved to the HOPD because they're not financially viable in the setting of an ASC. So I think there's gonna have to be cooperation with industry and the partnership and the care of our patients to be able to come up with viable financial solutions that allow us to do these cases where they should be done, not necessarily based on reimbursement, but what's best for the patient long-term. And, and is it, is the single largest financial, um, the cost there is the implant? So yes, it does typically come down to the implant as being the cost breaker when it comes to the analysis of whether or not this is viable at the ASC. Well, and, and just to talk about that for a second, if you're lucky enough to get 100% of your cost back from the insurance companies, that really doesn't cover your cost because your uh, billing folks alone are going to be anywhere from 3 to 5% of that. Um, the, the storing of it, the utilization, the handling of it, all of those things, uh, taxes, shipping, all of that. Uh, cuts into um, not your margin, it cuts into your your spend and, uh, and your reimbursement. And so you're losing money on implants. Even if you're getting reimbursed 100%, you're losing money. If, if it's a break-even, you've actually lost money. And then the challenge is, frankly, for the surgical centers, they want you to come and do your cases there. The challenge as a busy surgeon is if you've got to do a high-acuity case where they're not going to pay for the implants, and so you have to go to the hospital system to do so. 
what are you going to do with the rest of your cases? And right. some of those may end up migrating as well just because of, of convenience. It's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So it actually has a trickle-down effect where it's not just the one case where the implants aren't covered, but it may be the rest of your cases that day, which can be a big hit to the bottom line for these ASAs. Well, and then one more piece to that, too. If you are fortunate enough to have a contract that reimburses implants, that doesn't mean you're going to get paid for it. There are technical denials that take place. Uh, you have to circle the dollar amount on the invoice in red and and the facility fee has to be paid first. And then you have to resubmit the, the claim again a second time just to get paid for that. And you might not get paid. So um, do you know what percentage on average implants that are payable actually pay? It's probably not 100%. Probably all can agree on that. I know. I can tell you in Connecticut, uh, workers comp will know, no, we're, we're paying you more. It includes it all. Yeah. It's all okay. Really? Right. Trust yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, so we're going to switch topics a little bit. Uh, social media, um, as a business person, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. We we have to have it. And there are things out there that we don't love, but uh, it's just the, the way things are today. How do you use social media in a positive way to interact with your patients, uh, pre-op and post-op, if you do. So what I always like to say is that, you know, we don't operate on shoulders. We actually operate on patients. Uh, and I think if you get so, uh, so much tunnel vision that you're just concerned about the outcome of the surgery while not really caring about what the patient has to go through, to get through healing, to get back to work, to be a, a husband or a wife or a father and do all the things that you want to do, though it matters. And and so what we try to do with social media in particular is to educate our patients on what that experience can be. And it's not always me doing the talking. Uh, it's oftentimes the patients doing the talking. Dr. Redler and I are big believers in the patient testimonial video world in which we're allowing the patients to voice their, their opinion. And I think that um, when I open the door, uh, to see my next patient, as a general rule, they're there because they want to see me. And a lot of that reason is, is because of the social media influence that we have, both preoperatively and postoperatively in sharing those experiences. I, I will go along what Scott said. And, and here's what I know. You need to know your patient as a patient, not just as a broken part. And I would tell you, that if you know your patient and you, 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 they have a feeling that you know more about them, they're going to do better with what may be exactly the same care or the same technical care as someone who only knows, well, rotator cuff torn, we're going to fix. But if you know what, how that affects their whole life and you know their whole life and you know that you care about them as a person, not just as a broken part they're going to do better. And part of our job in terms of taking care of patients is to know them as, as, as patients and individuals. One of the ways that we can reach out to them in that regard and let them know that we're aware of that is with social media. When it's done right, it's a wonderful tool to let them know what's out there and how they can recover and do better with their injury. Interesting. So I have uh, a question about the new payment methodologies that are hitting the market today. Um, how do you think, well, you actually answered it a couple of questions ago. How do you think these new payment uh, methodologies affect clinical decisions? Well, you know, it's unfortunate, but they, they truly do determine, you know, patient care plans. Um, as much as I would like to be able to just do what I want to do for the patient, what's best for the patient, 
what is the best long-term solution. That's just not an option. And someone's got to pay for it. And uh, based on the amount of money that the insurance plan that a patient has will dictate how much money is in the pot to be able to care for patients. I think that there are moves towards a patient pay model, uh, which have been very successful across our country as well for people that are looking to get the care that they want, regardless of, of the payment structure. I think that's a viable option. And But I think that value-based care, we've been talking about that for 15 years now, and I think we're really pretty good at it. Uh, we do you know, figure out the way to reduce costs and provide high-quality care for our patients, but we're getting curveballs every day. It's, there's another regulatory push here and there to reduce the amount of money that we're going to be paid for as surgeons. It's, you know, We're asked to press more buttons every day and do more work. And every day I'm here and I'm going to get paid less. So we do the best that we can for each individual patient. You know, I think that we know as time goes on, economics can be challenging. So value-based care, patient pay models are going to become more and more prevalent. The, the challenge I think is with, you know, patient care models, frankly, you know, different people have different levels of economics and, you know, you, what can they afford and what can they can take care of? They still got to, you know, take care of their family. They still got to pay rent. They still got to, you know, drive a car or have transportation. They still got to eat. And so what you always worry a little bit about is that create second class citizens. And we don't want to do that. I can say the same thing with value based care, because part of value based care. And if you're going to you need to demonstrate your outcomes. That means low infection rate, low readmission rates, low complication rates. Well, there are patients out there that may have obesity, may have diabetes, they may have heart disease, and they really need care. And what you don't want is for those patients to be marginalized because of the fact, well, I need better outcomes. So I can't operate on those patients that have more comorbidities because my outcomes won't be as good. I'm not going to get that same value case-based care bundle. And so I worry about those marginalized patients because they need good care too. So if we think about the patient first, I think there's still some issues where this this model, these models are going to be challenging. You know, that's interesting because insurance carriers today track the spend of surgeons by specialty. And uh, many stamp a grade uh, based on those costs. And when you peel back the layers of the onion, you can see sometimes those higher cost providers have those patients with multiple morbidities or they're, they're, they're in a certain population, they smoke, they, they're you know obese, all of those things, or maybe they eat meatloaf two hours before surgery. I don't know, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, when I looked at that data, you saw those patients congregating into one location typically for care. Um, so I'm just wondering if you've seen that, you know, migration of care for those marginalized patients um, to certain areas or certain surgeons that service that population. You know, it, it's hard to know where some of those patients are going. I think I, I still may be uh, idealizing, but I, but I think that they're still coming and we're saying, you know what, I'm going to take care of the patient. I'm going to do what they need to do. You try and create or correct those comorbidities that you can, but sometimes you cannot. And um, I think that, and, and maybe I'm, I'm sounding dinosaurish, like by saying, I'm still going to take care of those patients there as well and, until they, they, they tell me or that I can't or they won't let me. But I think that, you know, they're either going to end up at, at bigger university systems that can just swallow them into a bigger pool of patients. And the problem with that, of course, is do they end up with a situation where they are just a broken part and not an actual whole person? 
swing back to our original thought. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. And, and uh, I think just managing time, we're going to jump to the last question. Uh, you guys obviously are really visionaries in this space and focused on educating the market have been amazing for the orthopedic industry in general. So with, with all the perspective you guys have and what you're seeing fast forward five to 10 years from now, what is, what does the practice of orthopedics look like combination of group practice, ASC, everything together? How do you guys see that looking and what are the key differences from today? You know, I, I think the transformation we've seen, and I think we both have seen over the decades, is the one and two man or two person groups have gone by the wayside. Uh, I think there's been tremendous uh, consolidation, uh, and some of it's been for for the best because there is better control of costs and sometimes a bigger group. What you hope is you don't lose the personalization of care. Uh, I think that. Um, you know, the business of orthopedics is becoming even more and more of a business. I mean, there's been some very successful groups that have been involved with private equity, and that's been a, a great thing for them as well. But I think that that small group is probably going to cease to exist. And what you help is that if you're part of a big group, you can still be that individual that people seek by name, not just by the big organization. And I, and I think that's going to continue. I don't see any reason with the current economics that that trend will stop. Consolidation, consolidation, <laughs> consolidation, right? Uh, it's every day you're picking up the newspaper right now about some uh, independent business getting into the healthcare space, right? You know, Optum's buying up all of the primary care doctors. Walmart's going to have clinics. Amazon's going to have clinics. And I think what may happen, I think that even if you talk to commercial insurance people that work within the industry, I think everyone's confused, right? What what are we actually doing? What is your role? What is your job? Right now, we do know that it creates a lot of extra cost to the system uh, by having these type of administrative processes that are present. So the question becomes, can we lower the cost of healthcare by eliminating a middle person to be able to provide the healthcare direct to the consumer? And then we may be working for Amazon. We may be working for the next big Google. Who knows what it's going to be? But I think that uh, we have the best healthcare system in the world. We have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. Uh, and I think people are going to try and figure this out as we move forwards. So, so wait, do we just get a picture of the fro being a Walmart greeter? I <laughs> <laughs> just, just say <laughs> it could be done. I, I, <laughs> yeah. He, he probably would be pretty that, good at it. That might be the one so. thing that would drive me to Walmart. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> I love it. Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, this was fabulous. Thank you guys so much for, for taking the time to do this here in Chicago at Becker's. And uh, we really enjoyed it. And again, thanks again. Oh, thank you thank for you. hosting us. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you.